The recordings you hear on the Boombox Show were loaned for the purposes of promotion and remain the property of their respective composers, artists, and record labels. The baby boomer years, the Boombox years, were a benchmark in global society. What baby boomers wanted, they got, owing simply to the fact that we were born free of restriction, full of imagination, and possessed the most powerful voting bank in history. Smoking marijuana is legal in almost all the United States today, only because the baby boomers had to wait for all of our parents to die before we could vote it in. But we did. Thank Woodstock, our God. The sexual revolution, the sensuous woman, the information age, muscle cars, all in the family, the highest divorce rate in history, and a bunch of other stuff we're not proud of are all part of the baby boomers' footprint. Vietnam veterans were treated horribly. That's part of the boomers' legacy, and that was bad for America. 19- and 20-year-old vets refused service or even admission to the VFW after serving their country in war were forced to ask their mothers to buy them a six-pack. Only to hear the words, you wait till your father gets home. The baby boomer years begat an unprecedented demand for free beer. This is the Boombox Show. Turn it up. Stood there bowling, sweating in the sun. Felt like a million, felt like number one. The height of summer. I'd never felt that strong Like a rock I was 18 Didn't have a care Working for peanuts Not a dime to spare But I was leaning Solid everywhere Like a rock hands were steady, my eyes were clear and bright, my walk had purpose, my steps were quick and light, and I held firm to what I felt was right, like a rock, like a rock, I was strong as I could be, like a rock. Nothing ever got to me like a rock I was something to see like a rock And I stood arrow straight Unencumbered by the weight of all these hustlers and their schemes I stood proud, I stood tall
20 years now Where'd they go? 20 years I don't know I sit and I wonder sometimes Where they've gone And sometimes late at night Oh, when I'm bathed in the firelight The moon comes calling a ghostly white And I recall I recall Like a rock Standing arrow straight Like a rock Charging from the gate Like a rock, 
program that never crashes. The Boombox.
century. This is the Boombox Show. Hi, I'm Teen Angel. You probably heard about what happened to me and my short back in 57. Well, ever since then, I've been haunting this here mall shop because it's where I used to hang out, you know? That used to be my booth right there, where I'd sit all day drinking colas with Betty Lou. Most of the kids now, though, drink this uncola 7-Up. Of course, we could have drunk 7-Up, too. But in them days, we figured having 7-Up with your hamburger was like wearing a bicycle clip on your chinos. We thought nothing could beat out a cola. Well, we was wrong. 7-Up, the uncola, is really with it. It's Nowsville, man. Good evening, Senator Kennedy. Good evening, Mr. Shadell. And good evening to you, Vice President Nixon. Good evening, Mr. Shadell. Now, the first question is from Mr. McGee and is for Senator Kennedy. Senator Kennedy, yesterday you used the words trigger-happy in referring to Vice President Richard Nixon's stand on defending the islands of Kimoi and Matsu. Last week, on a program like this one, you said the next president would come face-to-face with a serious crisis in Berlin. So the question is, would you take military action to defend Berlin? Mr. McGee, we have a contractual right to be in Berlin, coming out of the conversations at Potsdam, end of World War II, That has been reinforced by direct commitments of the President of the United States. It's been reinforced by a number of other nations under NATO. I have stated on many occasions that the United States must meet its commitment on Berlin. It is a commitment that we have to meet if we're going to protect the security of Western Europe. And therefore, on this question, I don't think that there is any doubt in the mind of any American. I hope there is not any doubt in the mind of any member of the community of West Berlin. I'm sure there isn't any doubt in the mind of the Russians. We will meet our commitments to maintain the freedom and independence of West Berlin. Mr. Vice President, do you wish to comment? Yes. As a matter of fact, the statement that Senator Kennedy made was that to the effect that there were trigger-happy Republicans, that my stand on Kimoy and Matsu was an indication of trigger-happy Republicans. I resent that comment. I resent it because it's an implication that Republicans have been trigger-happy and therefore would lead this nation into war. I would remind Senator Kennedy of the past 50 years. I would ask him to name one Republican president who led this nation into war. There were three Democratic presidents who led us into war. I do not mean by that that one party is a war party and the other party is a peace party. But I do say that any statement to the effect that the Republican Party is trigger-happy is belied by the record. We had a war when we came into power in 1953. We got rid of that, we've kept out of other wars, and certainly that doesn't indicate that we're trigger-happy. We've been strong, but we haven't been trigger-happy. As far as Berlin is concerned, there isn't any question about the necessity of defending Berlin, the rights of people there to be free, and there isn't any question about what the United American people, Republicans and Democrats alike, would do in the event there were an attempt by the Communists to take over in Berlin. Now, as I was saying, Chelsea, my uncle never misses an Italian movie. Oh, is he Italian? No, he's dirty old man. <laughs> I was young once, but it didn't last. I don't know if 
I told you, but I spend every winter in a nudist camp. Well, we're allowed to wear boots and earmuffs. You know, it's really amazing how many places you can wear earmuffs. <laughs> you know, my crowd has a new campaign. We're petitioning Congress to lower the age of puberty. <laughs> Ashbury always has the Christmas spirit. Oh, yes, every day of the week you can see jolly bearded guys on the street holding a little pot and going, ho, ho, ho. I met the most divine man at a party last week, but he's married. So I guess I'll have to wait a few months. It is easier for the camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for the flower girl to be tailor-made. Funeral cost over five thousand dollars so far. So far? Yeah, we buried him in a rented tuxedo. Virus free. This is the Boombox Show.
Free Beer by J.D. Coburn Part 3. The Lake Growing up on Lake Coeur d'Alene, you came to know a lot of things that you didn't really know, but you just knew. Like, lake levels rise and fall. See, I knew that. Sometimes they'd rise or fall a couple of feet or more. Sure, I knew that too. Land might be exposed when the lake was at a low level, and that land might remain land for years before disappearing again. Yep, knew that. When the lake was low, you could sell that land. I did not know that. Now that I think about it, Skip Kindler must have owned the truck. So how did it get my grandfather's license plates? Well, I must have put them there. Skip was in his 20s, but we palled around a lot. His father had been friends with my mother. Skip's dad and one-shot Charlie had surveyed a great deal of the land around Lake Coeur d'Alene before anything like development had taken place. Skip's dad had purchased quite a lot of that land, too, uh, particularly land called Waterfront, the richest kind. Skip's dad had passed away when Skip was still in his teens, and as a result, Skip owned quite a lot of Waterfront. As an example, Skip owned a lot of Harris in Idaho, where One Shot Charlie lived. Well, in 1965, the water level fell about three feet on Lake Coeur d'Alene, and it stayed that low for about four years. As a result, there was this bay, Skip owned the shoreline around it, but that bay was no longer a bay. It was a marshland, charitably. Some enterprising young developers saw this as an opportunity, and he put up three things. He put up a fence that ran the entire width of the bay. He put up a 40-foot dock, and he put up a sign that said, For Sale. Well, Skip wasn't going to put up with any of that. You knew just by looking that this was not the real lake level. You could see the waterline and the outcroppings of basalt around the cove. You'd be an idiot to buy this land. But I guess the fellow selling it thought he was pretty smart. The access road was inaccessible in winter and nearly impassable in spring, but not for the truck. Skip and I just put on the chains, dropped the jimmy into compound low, and rolled on in. It was dark, about 11 p.m. when we got there, so right off we didn't see the for sale sign and accidentally backed over it a couple of times. We were so embarrassed we hid the sign in the lane. Now, the road was not clearly marked either, not anymore, so we got a little lost and accidentally drove over 400 feet of fence. But the fence, likewise, was not clearly marked, so the dock was a problem. We couldn't do anything about the piling, not without a chainsaw. That had been driven down to bedrock. But it was simple to detach the chain. Bolt cutters, even a three-quarter inch ratchet would get that thing undone. But to get the dock to some other part of the lake where it did not constitute a safety hazard, well, that required a boat. The silver spray would have been perfect. Skip owned the silver spray. The silver spray was a small and highly maneuverable tugboat that worked the lake that had a high-pressure water nozzle 
mounted amidship for marine firefighting. The nozzle could shoot a stream of water 50 feet, which was perfect for disrupting competing keggers on the beaches. Sadly, the silver spray was at the bottom of Lake Coeur d'Alene, where it remains today, the victim of cruel maritime safety regulations and the ignorance thereof. Dick Smith had a boat. Dick Smith was an amiable fellow. His face was almost perfectly round, as were his shoulders. A junior city councilman, Dick was well-liked and well-connected in the community. As a sportsman, Dick had all the accoutrements, guns, a snowmobile, a goat, a sort of small motorcycle, and a ten-foot aluminum boat with an eight-horsepower outboard motor for fishing and trapping. Now, it was nearly 1 a.m. by the time we made our way around the lake and got out to Dalton Gardens, where Dick lived. Dalton was a little north of town, and we had to stop at Matt and Elsie's to take chains off and get a can of gas so that Dick couldn't say, I don't have any gas. Then at Elsie's, we picked up some hot coffee and donuts as well. Dick would want the coffee. The donuts would seal the deal. By 2 a.m., we were on the lake, putting along at maybe 8 miles an hour pretty good clip. The property was an hour away at that rate. Dick was cold. He wasn't used to adventures the way that Skip and I were. Skip and I had gone on many adventures in the truck. We went windmill salvaging through central Washington one time. We took every back road in the state for a couple of days just to see where they went. And when we saw a beat-up windmill, we would stop and ask the farmer if we could have it. I got one. I loaded it onto the back of the truck, and I had it for years. Together, Skip and I went hunting for dilapidated rail cars as well. We wanted to line the road approaching Harrison, Idaho, Skip's town, with old rail cars, maybe a caboose if we could find one. And in the pre-satellite and cable days of the 60s, we drove up to the TV network relay tower that fed all the West Coast ABC television affiliates to see how hard it would be to patch in a gay porno during My Three Sons. It was doable. We just never got around to doing it. There was a hatch on the roof of the relay station to permit entry in the winter when the snow was 10, 12 feet. So we'd go in by snowcat, we determined, a caterpillar tractor with a heated cab and a wide track for driving on snow. Well, we'd go in just before a forecast storm, patch over a three-inch video player that was already there, and play back some grainy movie that Skip would have to transfer to a three-inch videotape. As I said, it was doable. We'd play the show. Maybe it would stay on the air for 10, 15 seconds before you saw a test pattern in your homes as the TV stations up and down the West Coast scrambled to put something different on the air. But with the storm on the way, we'd have at least an hour before they figured out where we were. And again, there were no personal computers at that time, and the Internet was only used for research groups and colleges to swap data. So we'd have plenty of time to drive the snowcat back out to the truck and load it onto the trailer and get to Elsie's for a late dinner. Again, we never did it. When we got to the dock, it was easy going to unchain it and lash it to the boat. The little engine chugged along, and by the time the sun was rising over the mountains, we were smack in the middle of the north end of the lake, close to the city and our destination, the Blackwell Slough. 
That's when I lit the joint. Now, Dick was steering, so Skip and I stretched out on the dock, passed the joint back and forth, and giggled. It took a while for Dick to catch on, but when he did, he started to panic, right? Oh, God, I'm in the middle of this lake with a stolen dock and a couple of acid heads, Dick cried. Growing up in Idaho would make residents think that way. A joint was never made with acid, and even if it was, it was an experiment, and it usually ended up as a waste of pot and perfectly good acid. And we weren't stealing the dock anyway. We were removing a safety hazard. It was a nice dock. Well-made, brand new. We should have taken it to Harrison and given it to One-Shot Charlie. Skip and I looked out at all the beautiful summer homes and cabins that lined the shore. We talked a little about what the residents might think, seeing a dock in the middle of the lake, chugging along with Dick Smith at the helm. Then we giggled some more and It just made Dick crazy, so we cut it out. At the mouth of the Spokane River, the current began to move us along at a pretty good pace, so we steered the dock into the slough, and with very little effort, the current helped snap it into two 20-foot lengths that wedged very neatly into the bend. Somehow, though, we'd managed to be on the wrong side of the dock, and so we had to go out of the other end of the slough. It was a long way around, and it meant going under the new bridge, and past the old folks' home, an old Civil War-era mansion that had been converted into a state home for the elderly. And Dick was still rattled over our blatant violation of city, state, and federal narcotics laws, as well as the damage done to his person having seen it all, so when we passed the pipe that dumped raw sewage from the old folks' home directly into the Spokane River, well, he just about came unglued. Did you know about this? he demanded. Everybody knows about this, Dick. It's been like that since, you know, forever. Well, Dick's little city councilman mind went numb with the implications. There would have to be a special levy or an LID to extend the sewer service to the home. The the pipe might be out of city limits, but there were developments downstream and post-falls, and those fatheads were always raising hell about the crap floating downstream from the city. Oh, no, this was... This was terrible. There would have to be a special session called. We can fix it for you if you'll buy breakfast at Elsie's. It was my idea, but Skip saw the whole thing as soon as I said it. Dick argued a little, but we assured him that we had the solution. He agreed, and we loaded his boat and motor back onto the truck, and we drove to Bum's Jungle. Bum's was just a little stretch of pine adjacent to the rail line that ran north out of town and under the new bridge. It was used primarily by the mob as a place to have beer parties, since no one else in town would go there. We could hop freight trains there and go for rides. We could get loud and rowdy without disturbing anybody. In the summer, we could fly on a rope swing that hung from the Blackwell Island Bridge and over the Spokane River. Yes, we were swimming in raw sewage, but it was a really good rope swing. Dick asked us maybe 40 times, What are you going to (laughs) do? We just told him that he'd see when we got there. It didn't take long. We turned the truck around so that we were ready to exit the jungle on the one-lane logging road. I reached into the lockers and picked out a couple of blasting caps and some dynamite that I'd stashed there while staking mining claims the previous summer. A half a stick would do the job, so we took two. One last tap on the door to make sure Dick was okay. I don't want to know what you're doing. I'm not watching. I don't see anything. I don't know anything. 
Dick recited all this as if he was already giving false testimony. You sure, Dick? It's going to be pretty cool. No response, so we went on our way. It only took a few minutes, and we were back in the truck, staring in the direction of the bridge and the river. It was a righteous blast. Blew a ten-foot-by-ten-foot-by-ten-foot hole in the ground right there in the riverbank and eliminated any sign of the existence of a sewage drain. We climbed back into the truck and drove off down the rough road. The first cop car just whizzed past us. The second car stopped us. It wasn't unusual to see a vehicle like the truck with a boat and motor lashed to the rear and three passengers in the early morning hours in North Idaho, but the cop wanted to check us out so that, you know, he could say he did. Oh, good morning, Mr. Smith, said the officer, recognizing the councilman immediately. Doing some fishing? No, just testing the boat against the current, said Dick. Well, that sounded reasonable to the cop. Dissemblance comes easily when you're faced with the threat of the law. Say, did you hear anything like an explosion back there? queried the cop. I did hear that, said Dick. An explosion, you say? Yeah, we think so. Did you see anything up there? The cop stared right at Dick. Dick looked the cop straight in the eye and said, I didn't see a thing. Okay, then. Thanks for your time. You be safe now. And the cop waved us on. Breakfast at Elsie's on Dick Smith's dime was more than welcome after such an adventurous night. The side benefit of having a ten-foot-by-ten-foot-by-ten-foot hole in the riverbank in Bum's Jungle was that the mob would never have to carry out our empties after another beer bust. That's the end of Part 3 of Free Beer. Now, you're going to want to hear Part 4, where... We start telling the story of how the mob managed to get free beer. Please subscribe, get the next chapter, and never miss an episode of The Boombox Show. I'm Joseph Dean Coburn. Thanks for listening. The program that never crashes. The Boombox Show.
Listen where you play. The Boombox. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And endowed by the Creator. With certain inalienable rights. That when these rights are destroyed. Over long periods of time. It is your duty to destroy or abolish that government. I know at first 
Eskimo Foods is gonna assume that was some message Malcolm X left for Rap Brown. <laughs> but I know with a minimum amount of persuasion you can teach them fools that that was their beloved Declaration of Independence. Yeah, that one with that mistake on it. That one where they forgot to write for white only. You know, as funny as that may seem that you know, we dumb enough that if you didn't put white only on it, we dumb enough to read it and believe that that Declaration of Independence was written for all Americans. But when we do what it says do after long periods of injustice, we call it hoodlums and thugs, we realize for the first time that the Declaration of Independence was written for you. Why don't you label it so we will know? And then get it out of my black ghetto. I remember I was back in the ghetto in grade school, happy. Being a good nigga, singing the blues, I love my baby. Oh, baby, the oh. And the principal ran up to us one day and said, Board of Education said, Y'all can't graduate from grade school till you read and learn the Declaration of Independence. I said, What? The Declaration? <laughs> Man, we ain't gonna read that old white stuff. Said, well, you ain't gonna graduate. I said, Lay it on me then. <laughs> After long periods of justice, boy, you have a duty to destroy or abolish your government. I said, baby, y'all got some more this stuff, man, around. <laughs> you white folks really sick enough to believe you can put this stuff in our neighborhood and we're not going to read it and do what it says do? You white folks sick enough to believe you can still draft niggas into your army and send them down to Fort Benning, Georgia and teach them how to be gorillas and send them to Vietnam killing foreigners to liberate foreigners and think they're not going to come back to America and kill you to liberate their mammy, then you sticking out your mind. Oh, you ain't dealing with no World War II niggas no more that you could just <laughs> turn on and turn off. So as we leave you tonight, we say to you that you got a big job to do. You youngsters can solve the problems confronting America today. We as black folks ain't asking you to do us no favors. Do America some favors. Read. Ask a lot of questions. Most important, think. I read the Kerner Report on civil disorders in America. And as beautiful as the Kerner Report is, you still got to watch it. Because the Kerner Report says to solve the problems in the black community, going to cost America $80 billion. I hope you got more sense than to bring $80 billion down in my ghetto. You bring $80 billion down in my ghetto, all you're going to do is get the damnedest four-day crap game you ever seen in your life. <laughs> you want to solve the problems in the black ghettos, don't bring no money down there. You're going to have to do something first that won't cost you one nickel as far as black folks are concerned. And that is, for the first time in the history of America, you're going to have to create an atmosphere where black folks will trust white folks. And the way you're going to do that, not with $80 billion, you're going to get up on that Indian reservation and cut my red brother loose. 
You're going to give my Puerto Rican brother his constitutional rights. You're going to free my Mexican brother. And last but not least, because my Jewish brother plays a lot of games with himself, but you should paint your face as black as mine and see what that Gentile say to us about you every day and you realize you're in the same stinking bag with the rest of us. So what we say in short, simple, and sweet, when you free my Jewish brother, my Indian brother, my Mexican brother, my Puerto Rican brother, then at that point, we'll say, my white brother, I trust you. Come into my ghetto, and together we will solve my problems. But if you think you're going to solve my problems and keep all them other minority groups hung up, we say to you today, you better take that $80 billion and buy yourself some of the biggest guns money can buy, because you damn sure going to need them. So as we say goodnight to you this evening, I say to those of you that worked on my presidential campaign, thanks. Those of you that voted for me, thanks. I sit up late on election night waiting on Long Island to come in and put me over, you know. <laughs> Y'all goof. You know, it was a thrill for me to run for the presidency of the United States because I was the only candidate running for the presidency. The rest of them fools was running for sheriff. We just left Washington, D.C., and we had our inauguration. <laughs> Good affair, wasn't it? We declared ourselves the independent write-in president of the United States in exile, and we went to Washington March the 4th and had our inauguration, and we are going to open up a black house. <laughs> and for the next four years, we're going to see if we can wipe out the problems of hunger confronting Americans today. And I say to you, young white kids tonight, you kids that dedicated to human rights. You kids that want to help the Indians, help the Puerto Ricans, and help the Mexicans. One mistake I hope you will not make. There's a poor, hungry, hillbilly white boy in this country that nobody gives a damn about. I hope you will make him your concern, too. They're busy passing out food stamps in South Carolina to black folks. There's some white folks in Appalachia that need some food stamps, too. I hope you get concerned about all people. And I hope you'll be as interested in going into that white ghetto tutor and that little hillbilly kid, too, because he got a right to get some help. I hope you will see to it that the colleges and universities in America will open up their doors and take in some of them hillbillies' kids, too. I hope you don't start helping everybody and pass your poor white brother by and make him pay the cost for this vicious, insane society. And so you youngsters have a big job. I know many of you have to go to work. Some of you got babysitters to relieve. So right now, we're going to turn you loose, those of you that have to go. And I say to you, thank you so much for showing up tonight. May nature have fun with you, and may God bless you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, yeah, good evening. And I guess I should say it's a pleasure to be here in Washington, D.C. <laughs> but you have to do something about your crime. <laughs> you know, no, really. No, I, I say this in all sincerity. You know, I, I, the one city I would really love to move and bring my family to is Washington, D.C. 
work for your crime. Now, don't, don't. Crime don't scare me. It's my mother-in-law. <laughs> no, I can just see her walking down one of these dark, dangerous Washington, D.C. streets one night, and some cat walk up to her, and she grab his wallet and split. <laughs> now, you know, your crime's so bad here, I don't drink nothing but water, because you got to be alert in this time. <laughs> it was here last year, this time, I was in town, and my secretary got raped. And his girlfriend, too. <laughs> you know, really, really, you know, you all ought to form some citizens groups or something and really try to curb the crime rate here in Washington. Because, you see, at the rate you, you folks doing here in Washington, your crime rate is going to equal that up on the hill. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of it, but you know, your town, Washington, D.C., was just voted by the inmates of Sing Sing Penitentiary, the city they could most likely succeed in. <laughs> it's the only town in the world a cat can stick up a bank and get mugged on the way to the getaway car. <laughs> now, you know, it's, um, it's, it, it's really amazing how, how you know, the, pe the press, you know, reporting the crime and, and what have you, how, uh, well, I, I don't know really how to say it, but how frightful and, and scared people, you like, you know, cab drivers, you know, like, those are the cats that a lot of people, you know, figure do anything. But, you know, cab drivers are scared to pick you up in this town. Last night I got off of work and I decided, you know, I'd go by and see a friend of mine, and I'm out in the street trying to, you know, hail a cab, and the cab driver was a cool cab, he, he stopped, he says, uh, 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 Buddy, I'll take you any way you, you want to go as long as you don't mind riding on the hood. <laughs> Are you government employees sitting out there just laughing and having fun like Nixon's not planning on moving the whole government operation to the West Coast? <laughs> yeah, he's going to move it to the West Coast. And the only thing he's not going to take with him is Agnew and you. <laughs> No, I, I, I dig Agnew myself, you know. I, now I feel Agnew is Washington, Washington, D.C.'s answer to Rosemary's baby. <laughs> I, I really believe Agnew's putting us all on. <laughs> I don't believe it's humanly possible for anybody to be born that dumb. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I mean, Agnew reminds me of the type of cat that couldn't chew gum and walk at the same time. <laughs> beautiful thing about Agnew is, is, you know, he's so, he's so thoroughly out of it. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Agnew get on TV one day and slip and call Nixon a honky. <laughs> There's a possibility somebody else here, you know. And, and we kind of believe that, you know, Agnew kind of hinted. Remember when he said the next we going to tomorrow? You know, looking for little bitty green folks. And I can't understand, you know, what makes you think they're green like they haven't got right yet? <laughs> and when we go and blow all that bread looking for a little bit of green folks, I hope you don't find no little bit of green folks up there. That's right. I hope you find some people on Mars, but not no little bit of green folks. I hope you find some cats on Mars 47 yards tall, <laughs> 10 yards wide. <laughs> 
Life with nappy hair. Ninety-nine billion of them. I bet we'd get it then. Oh, be just I love they find ninety-nine billion big black cats on Mars and try to communicate with them. Earth to Mars, come in, Mars, and they come in. Down the ball. I don't can, can you imagine us going all the way to Mars looking for some people? I mean I mean, it might be someone there. But figure, how are we gonna blow all this money first to go take pictures, right? And how do you you know take pictures of people you never seen before? I mean, if there's people there and we get a picture of them, how do we know it's them? You know. And we don't know what they look like, like them rocks and stuff they brought back from the moon. Might have been a cat's leg. <laughs> we don't know what moon folks look like. Maybe moon people just one big crater, right? <laughs> look at all the money they've blown on them moon pictures. You know, I don't believe they spent that much. I believe them cats got to get on the hill and split that money up and took a camera and took a close-up shot of some cold oatmeal. <laughs> I showed them moon shots to my baby daughter. She put sugar and cream on trying to eat it. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine a cat coming down here from Mars tonight trying to check us out? And, and I hope he don't come to Washington. He'd get robbed. <laughs> get mugged and his spaceship busted, too. <laughs> but can you imagine? Just imagine. Just imagine. Now, we here, right? We know we here. See that some cat up there in Mars flowing. A million dollars to come out here tonight to check us out. And he lands, right? Huh? In a filling station that's closed, right? <laughs> Imagine he walk up to the pump thinking he's talking to us, right? <laughs> Earthman, I'm 105-78-X534972 from Mars. Earthman, take your finger out of here, boy. I'm pumping you. <laughs> Have you ever stopped to think? What Neil Armstrong's reaction would have been had he got up there and been some folks there? You ever thought about that? I can see it now. There's a Neil Armstrong we just landed. Uh, I'm out. I think it's some. I think it's some folks over there. Everybody be glued to the set. And, uh, and I can see I can see some cat at the NASA program sitting back here safe. Go talk to him. <laughs> And no, they would have talked because, you know, when a cat got adventure in his blood, you know, he's not scared of nothing, right? And you walk over to him and say, Moon Man, I'm Neil Armstrong from the planet Earth. How many of you are there up here on the moon? Moon Man say, well, baby, about 200 trillion of us up here on the moon. We'd like for you Earth folks to know that next year we're going to visit you. <laughs> Neil Armstrong said, well, thank you very much, uh, Moon Man, and we will uh, notify the folks on Earth that you're coming. Okay, thank you. Uh, bye, Moon Man. Moon Man say, bye, nigga. Wouldn't that be beautiful, not only to be called a nigga, but after you just finished paying $24 billion for the opportunity, baby. Uh,
know, you know, my only hang-up is not, I'm not against progress, you know. Again, I say I think those little pictures were interesting shots if you dig holes. <laughs> but I think in the, in, in the process of blowing money and spending money, you know, I'm not hung up about they should spend it here for poverty. I mean, we had poverty before we had a moon program and it didn't try to solve it. So I had no fallacies about me that if it wasn't going to the moon, they'd be spending it to relieve poor folks. So, but I think that if they spend it, they should spend it a little bit more intelligently. Like, don't be looking for folks you don't know what they look like. All right, baby. Can you imagine some Martins being stupid enough tonight to come down here? Not land, Jim, just to take some pictures, check out who we here. And they come down tonight, you know, blow $35 million of Martin corn. Come on down, you know. Yeah. Take the little pictures, click, 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 and get back and land on Mars. And develop their film, but what they didn't know, they were taking pictures over a highway. And everything they're looking at is nothing but automobiles, but they never seen us, so quite naturally, they think the automobiles is us, right? Can you see these brilliant Martin scientists discussing us? Yes, they have very intelligent life down there. They travel 80 and 90 miles an hour. <laughs> and at nighttime, their eyes light up. <laughs> and they're very affectionate folks. They just bump into one another all the time. <laughs> And they have the strangest way of having sex. They just pull into some little place and something weird comes out and ram something in the rear. <laughs> and if you listen real close, you hear him say, fill her up and hear bells ring. <laughs> Sometimes they get real dirty with it. They say, put a tiger in it. Ah! The way the country's going now, I think pretty soon there's, there's going to be a black president. And uh, I noticed the crowd stopped laughing. <laughs> I think pretty soon there's going to be a black president, and I could imagine him on the Nagaol speech. <laughs> Nago. That's right, when the revolution comes, we're taking our words with us. <laughs> The Nago theme be playing. Theme from Shaft. Drum, 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 Press pulls up. El Dorado, white bucket seats, bubble top. The Prez gets out. The chauffeur gets out. Prez addresses the crowd. Tilts his beaver skin hat to the side. Takes off his shades, addresses the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I am very happy to be elected president of this great United States, and, and moreover, I'm very happy to be elected the first black, black president of this great United States. Right now, I'd like to give you the State of the Union message, but first, the number for today. <laughs> You got it? You're the vice president, come with me. Listen where you work. The boombox.
I got life, mother. I got life, sister. I got freedom, brother. And I got good times, man. I got crazy ways, daughter. I got million dollar charm, cousin. I got headaches and toothaches and bad times too like you. I got my hair, I got my head, I got my brains, I got my ears, I got my eyes, I got my nose, I got my mouth, I got my teeth, I got my tongue, I got my chin, I got my neck, I got my tits, I got my heart, I got my soul, I got my back, I got my You know, you guys are really too much, and I want to introduce you to the, the guys individually in The Who, because you never get to know their names, you know them as The Who. Everybody says, Who? And you say, you know, what's your, so what's your name? Pete. Pete. Townsend, Pete, yeah. Pete, and where are you from, Pete? London. From London? Yeah. London where? London, England. <laughs> hey, where'd you learn to play, you know, that's a wild style of uh, playing. Where'd you learn to play the guitar like that? That was bowling. Bowling. <laughs> bowling. Yeah, I could tell. Now we move right along. Yeah. Uh, right over here. Right over here. And you're... Um, John. You're John? John. Yeah. And, you're, and you're from London, sir. From London, too? Yeah. And uh, you must be uh, Roger. I must be. Uh, why are you? Yeah. You're Roger? Roger. And where are you from? Uh, Oz. Roger. <laughs> Here's Roger from Oz. <laughs> And over here, the guy plays the sloppy drums. Follow the yellow brick road. What's your name? Keith. Keith? My friends call me Keith. You can call me John. Okay, John. I'm gonna, yeah. I just soon call you Roger. Uh, Roger from Oz. What's the, what's the next song you're going to do? My Generation. Your Generation? Yeah. Well, I can really identify with that because I really identify with these guys. I dig them. And this is... A, you know... You've got sloppy stage hands around here. <laughs> okay, that's enough! They're gonna sing My Generation. This song really goes, and you're gonna be surprised what happens because this is excitement and hit it. My Generation. <laughs> people try 
dig what we all s- that never crashes. The Boombox.